Thank you, Dean. My father was born in 1964, so I was hanging out with Jesus somewhere in 63. So. Well, I hope you have your Bibles today. Go ahead and grab them if you do, or turn them on if you're one of those guys. And uh, <laughs> a lot of physical and digital Bible references today. Uh, <laughs> uh, go ahead and grab them. Head on over to 1 Corinthians 11. We are in chapter 11, starting the crazy parts of the book. Uh, we're, wa- we're making our way through this letter quite nicely. Uh, from my estimation of how I've kind of laid out it into my preaching calendars, we should be done the book of 1 Corinthians by Easter. So we're, we're, <laughs> we're getting through it. Um, and then we'll start on the next book that will sit in for a while. So it's been a wonderful joy. It's been a tough letter, but it's been an important letter. And I just want to say to you as a congregation uh, that... Uh, Every time I preach on one of the hard subjects, more of you sit up in the balcony. It's just, uh, no, I'm kidding. (laughs) But uh, it's it's been hard, and you guys have weathered it very well. I've had so many great conversations around the text, even actually around the most difficult texts, and how it's been a joy to hear them. So I want to just praise you in a sense for a moment for being a mature congregation and handling the Word of God well. But now we're getting to the hard stuff. And I know I've said that probably like seven times throughout this series, but, but it just keeps getting harder because <laughs> and, uh, and it, it, it's a difficult letter. And today's passage might make you feel a little uncomfortable, but that's what the Word of God does sometimes to us, but that, and that's okay. But I reckon that the following message is going to be one of the most difficult messages, yet one of the most important messages you have heard thus far in this letter. And I say this because you won't hear what I'm about to teach in any other church but a Bible-teaching and believing church. So I want you to know that. That's where we are going to stand today. I don't know who who said this first, and I'll quote them anonymously because I don't know who it was, but the Word of God does not need to be defended. The Word of God is a lion. We just have to let it out of its cage. It will defend itself. So that's what we're, we're not going to defend the word today. We're going to look at the word and its plainness and its simplicity, and we're going to stand upon that. And I want to say again, as I, as I say about all these tough messages, come and talk to me. If something is not clear, something doesn't sit right, if you want to wrestle it out, it's one of my biggest joys is to talk about theological differences. So let's talk about that. Let's wrestle through it together. That's what the point of the Word of God is. That's the point of the church is that we sharpen each other. We encourage each other. We talk to each other. We don't go have a slice of each other for lunch with our family later. But if you've ever, ever wondered why Christians stand as strange aliens or oddballs to the watching world, why we're like those beat-up salmons. You ever see a salmon who swam upstream, swimming against current? Some of them are missing eyes, like they had gashes taken out of them because they're swimming against the current. They're swimming against other fish, and they're smacking each other, right? And this is what Christians happens to Christians, is when we go against culture, we get beat up a little bit. But we have the Word of God with us. So today's message is going to be one of those tough messages, and you're going to understand why we are weirdos to the culture around us. But before we get into the, and delve deep into our text, I just want to remind you, especially for any of you who are new, uh, I see five structures in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we broke it up that way. So uh, division one, or sorry, section one was divisions in the church. We looked at in verse, or sorry, chapters one to five. Then we went to questions surrounding sex and singleness. We looked at in chapters five to seven. And then we looked at in uh, section three, how to navigate controversies surrounding meat offered to idols. And then we applied that to other controversies that kept, uh, that keep us from reaching. Oh, I didn't even know I had a slide for that. That keeps us reaching from those around us. And today we're heading into the fun section of corporate worship wars. That's what I call it. And that's what we see from 11 to 14. And I'm starting it today, and then we're going into Christmas, thank God, because we need a little bit of joy uh, before we go through this section. But this fourth section is a doozy. 
It's going to be a hard one. So I just want to caution you, as we work our way through these next few chapters, I want you to put on your theological body armor, okay? Because there's going to be shrapnel flying everywhere from the Word of God. And why the Word of God pricks us when it comes to worship so often, because this is one of the main issues, is that we want to tell God how he is to be worshipped. We want to tell God how he is to structure his church. Right? We, we're like the serpent in the garden who says, well, did God really say, yes, he did. And actually, God is very, very clear how he is to be worshipped. It's called the regulative principle of worship, and it's in the scripture. And so when it goes against how we want to express our worship to God, sometimes it feels like we're being attacked by scripture. So Paul starts it all off with the least controversial thing you could talk about, and that's women and men in the church in both their roles. <laughs> Nothing less controversial than that. So some of the most confusing and misinterpreted statements found anywhere in the New Testament are found within these verses that we are about to read. And, and, and because some of these confusing phrases, there are a lot of people who just go, you know what? I'm going to skip over this section all together, and we're not going to look at it. But when we do that, uh, uh, but, but sorry, I'm going to get to that. But, but you know me by now. We're not going to do that, but we're going to wade through these uncomfortable waters together. But I think I could safely assume, I'm not going to have you put up your hands, but I, I, I would assume the majority of us in here probably haven't heard our pastors preach on this subject before. I know I haven't. It's one that was always conveniently missed. And uh, so, but today we're going to hit it. And it's a tragedy when we skip over these passages, when we look at the harder passages of Scripture and say, ah, I don't want to go there. Because when we do that, we miss as a body of Christ, out on something incredibly timely and important that the Holy Spirit is trying to illuminate to us by his scripture. I want you to hear this. You're going to hear this to the day I die or God removes me from here, which I'm going kicking and screaming, by the way. Uh, I'm going to tell you this every single time. Every word of scripture, every word of scripture is life. And it's all written for your good, for my good. And we should want to know all of it, even the uncomfortable stuff, even when it pricks us, even when it hurts us and makes us feel uneasy. So are you ready? All right. Father, help us. We need your help. Lord, give us eyes that see and ears that hear and a heart that receives your word today. Father, let my words be few because my words are vain, but Lord, let your words stand because it's timeless. Father, speak to us and impress this upon our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Starting in verse 2, because we, we went to verse 1 last week. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should have cut her hair short. But since it's, it, since it's a disgrace for a woman to cut her hair or shave her head, let her, let her cover her head." For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But women is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord... Women is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that it is a man, sorry, teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, uh, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. And I know what you're thinking. 
what could be controversial in those verses? And, <laughs> and since you've come to that same conclusion, have a blessed day. Let's close in the doxology and we'll just go home. <laughs> so what are we supposed to do with all that? There's so much there, and I only have 40 or so minutes to give it all to you, so it's not going to do it all justice. But what are we all to do with all that? And there's a number of interpretive challenges as it comes to these passages. For one, we're not entirely sure if by head covering, Paul means a physical covering, or if he's just talking about the hair of a woman. He seems to be talking about both. The majority of scholarship, and I would put myself in this camp as well, we, they understand that Paul is actually talking about a physical covering and not just hair, but we'll get to that soon. Second, what does it mean for a man to be ahead of the wife? If you're familiar with biblical scholarship, you know that this question alone has killed many trees. And you see... The, the, the Greek word uh, kafil, I'll say it wrong, kafil, the word Paul uses for head usually means authority, like head of school or head of staff. Or, uh, but in some contexts, it can mean source, like the headwaters of a river. So which does Paul mean here, authority, or does he mean source? Third, even after we figure all this out, how does any of this apply to us in 2023 in Canada? And is Paul saying in this passage that women should come into Fellowship Baptist Church every Sunday and wear a covering on their head? Is it a sin for women to come in here with a bobbed haircut? Were my independent Baptist forefathers correct in saying, based on this passage, long hair on men are sinful? Right? How many of you grew up in church where this verse was quoted to say that men shouldn't have long hair? It was very common. Do you remember the song? My dad sang this song to me all the time, and, and, the, and the funniest thing about this song is that he had long hair to the day he died. But yeah, the, the song went in the church, if your hair is too long, there's sin in your heart, get it cut today, make a brand new start, you'll live a life of fear and dread with that tangled mess upon your head. <laughs> okay. <laughs> is that what this passage is saying? Yeah. <laughs> One last reason why this is particularly challenging and, uh, and is hard for us as a culture is because we are understandably sensitive when we come and talk about gender issues in our society because we, there's been so much misinformation and, and diluting of what is true in culture and confusion and stereotypes around this subject. We now live in a culture that says gender distinctions are sociological constructs. So you can be biological sex he, but gender identified her, or non-binary they, them, or them. And if you insist on saying gender isn't real, you will lose your job. And if you don't believe me, ask J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter, one of the most powerful authors of this time in a sense. And she lost her job. She was canceled over insisting that there are two genders. And if it helps encourage you, the context Paul was writing in was even more contentious than ours. I, we always kind of live in this bubble that, oh, it's the worst now. No, it was horrible back then. On one hand, in Corinth, you have the Jews who were uber-traditional and patriarchal. On the other side of Corinth, there was one of the most sexually confused societies in history. Remember, I told you the word Corinthianized. It was a Greek word that was actually used as a verb, right? So to Corinthianize someone was to sexually corrupt that person. You know you're living in a messed up place when sexual corruption is hand in hand with the town you live in. Sexual promiscuity was rampant. Historians tell, tell us that there was a large gay and lesbian community. Transgenderism was a big thing there too. Cross-dressing was common both, by both genders. So in the midst of all this noise, in the midst of all this chaos, Paul is cutting through it all with the gospel. He's standing as a voice of reason, as, as he'll say, as the word says about itself, it, the church is to be a pillar and a buttress of truth in the shifting sands of culture. And this is what Paul is doing. He's cutting through the chaos of society. So that's the context in which Paul is saying these things and that he's speaking into it. And he's correcting both sides because on this subject of male and female roles, you can pendulum swing from this side to this side or from this side to this side. And what we want to find is the happy medium that scripture puts 
forward. So what I want to do is I want to answer four basic questions that I see in this text. But before I do that, let me take a drink because it's going to get hot in here. Okay. So what does it mean? What does it mean? This isn't working, so you're going to have to probably just follow along. Um, no, it's not me. Yeah, what does it mean uh, when Paul says the man is the head of the woman? That's question one. Number two, isn't this just a cultural thing? Haven't we moved past this? Isn't Paul just making accommodations for an ancient people? Three, what's the deal with these head coverings? And four, what does this all mean to us? All right, let's tackle the first one. What does it mean for men to be the head of women in verses 3, 8 to, or sorry, chapter, no, sorry, verses 3, 8 to 10 as well. Well, as I mentioned, the word head is the Greek word kaphil, and it can either mean authority, like the head of staff, or source, like headwaters of a river. And I think it's pretty clear that Paul is actually talking about both here. He has double intention. He's meaning both. One implies the other. According to Genesis, Eve was created out of the side of Adam, which means he, Adam, is her source. He, she, man is the source of woman. And while they are a complementing pair, both are made, by the way, in the image of God, there is a sense in which woman comes from man and was created from man that is not true if you reverse that order. And he, is, he was created first, he was, and she was fashioned out of his side, which is why women are into fashion ever since, and she was called, <laughs> and she was called the Ebzer Knigo. It's kind of like you have to say bless you after you say that. Ebzer Knigo, and that means headship. Uh, 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 sorry, no, it doesn't. It means helper, <laughs> two H's. It means helper. In other places, Paul directly um, ties this idea of head helper to headship, to submission. In Ephesians 5, for example, in verses 22 to 23, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and in himself is its savior. So him being the head implies a submission in certain relationships. A writer by the name of Hannah Anderson puts it this way. At its most basic, Scripture makes two claims about the ministry of men and women. First, that men and women are equal image bearers, worthy of equal honor and value. Second, that men and women hold different roles, with men exercising a headship that corresponds to a particular kind of authority in the church and home. Now, if there was ever a loaded concept to talk about in church... It would be headship and submission. So let me just stop for a moment and clarify what headship does not mean. Because there's lots of confusion around this and there's lots of abuse around this subject. Many puny men of history have abused their wives and women within the church based on these texts. Puny men. Small men. Because that's not what a man of God is. So the first thing... A, male headship does not mean the inferiority of woman. The book of Genesis that Paul quotes from is clear that both men and women are made in the image of God. They are image bearers of the one true holy God. They are different, yes, but each reveal God's glory and character in different ways, in complementary ways that are meant to come together. And so they're different, but they are equal. And we always have to remember the equality of the genders. Paul, in another place, in Galatians 3.28, is going to say there's, there's no distinction in Christ. And what he means there is that, that not that we're not gendered anymore. That's the one text that the liberal Christianities will run with, and they misinterpret it completely. But it's not that we're not gendered anymore, but rather that men and women are equal at the foot of the cross. They're equal. They're, they're equals in the eyes of God. Even in saying in verse 7 that woman is the glory of man, Paul is not demeaning her. I know that's kind of how it sounds and you read it, but that's not what he's saying. She was created as a glorious complement to the man. In many ways, better. Like, you, you understand that word, ebzer kanigo, the helper, is the same word applied to the Holy Spirit? When the 
comforter will come, when the helper will come. Meaning that the woman provides for a man something he doesn't have on his own. And the man provides for the woman something she doesn't have on her own. That's why when they come together, they complement each other. Complement each other. You're going to get that word a lot today. (laughs) Here's the neat thing about this passage that's talking about the woman being the glory of man and man being the glory of God. It's really beautiful, but oftentimes we miss it because we come to the text with emotion. And we get angry with it. We already have our preconceived ideas before reading it, and we miss what the Bible's trying to say. Here's what's beautiful. When you slow down and read this, you see Paul's clear argument. He says, man is the glory of God because they were, he was first to be created in his image. Woman is the glory of man because she was fashioned out of his side, but still in the image of God because Adam was made in the image of God. Now, here's the neat connection. Paul's talking about in the context of worship, when you gather together. When you're coming into a worship service, what do we want on display every Sunday? The glory of God. So man, why doesn't he cover his head in this context? Because that's the glory of God. Woman, cover her head because she is the glory of Man, so it's actually a beautiful picture in their context, and we'll get to the context stuff in a minute, but in their context, when, when women's hair would be uncovered, it was a sign of the glory of man. So eyes were on the glory of man, not on the glory of God. We do things a little bit differently, and we'll get to that, that promote the glory, our eyes going to the glory of God rather than the glory of man. And we always have to be cautious about this in all generations because it's easy to go look at me, right? We can change our worship songs and go, it's all about me and all the wonders that I do, right? We, we, we're glory thieves. I talked about this last week, but we'll get to more of that at the end. But for now, Andrew Wilson, I have to give him credit, he has this helpful illustration. He says the apple is the glory of the apple tree. So the tree is the source of the apple, So which one is better? Neither. But apples shouldn't act like trees, and trees shouldn't act like apples. They're both good, and they're both useful, and they both have unique relationships with one another that is good and right, and they shouldn't be muddled with. Because to muddle with this relationship is to say to the one true holy God that has designed everything, your design, by the way, God, is not good. I can do it better. Men and women can play different roles within the context of their relationship without implying the superiority or the inferiority of one another. And it all comes down to communication, really. So here's how I know that, though. See what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of his wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So God is the head of Christ. Now, by the way, God there is synonymous with Father. If you're ever reading God, and then it's synonymous with Father. God exists eternally as Trinity, which means there are three distinct persons in God. Fa- the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, and the Spirit's neither of them. There are, there are three distinct persons of one, uh, one essence, and they're all together, and there's only one God. We'll do a lesson on the Trinity another day. But Jesus, of course, is not any less God than the Father, which means he is fully equal to the Father. But when he came to earth, what did he do? He submitted to the Father. And he said things commonly like, not my will be done, Lord, but yours. Though he was fully equal with the Father, he looked at the Father as his head. This, is, this was not an assault on Jesus' dignity, nor did it reduce his equality with God. And the point is that if it wasn't an assault on Jesus' dignity to do that, then it's not an assault on your dignity or my dignity to do that either. Submission is something that God commands of all of us in various capacities. Submission is a Christ-like quality that we should all have and we should all learn and it doesn't imply inequality. Think of it this way. Some of you would remember, I, I was trying my best. How can I explain this really well? It, it, some of you would remember Cody Patton. He was a member of our church. He was even one of our elders. And so Cody, he was a peace officer or an Alberta sheriff, whatever you want to call them, whatever sounds cooler. And uh, so when Cody was in the church, he was under my authority as the elder, as one of the elders. 
But when I went and drove it on the road, Cody was my authority because he had the headship of the blue-red lights that could pull me over. Now, both of us in this context together, we didn't diminish any of that. Both of them were true at the same time. He wasn't greater than I or I wasn't greater than him. It all comes around context. So, and, 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 but he has a little bit more power. He can put me in jail, so. Uh, <laughs> if he's watching online, yeah. <laughs> B, male headship does not imply the subservience of the woman, meaning as if my wife was the servant of the household. While the command is given to her to submit to me as the head, the command given to me and to all of you men is, guess what? Lay down your life for her. Lay down your life to love her as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He died for the church. He stepped out of the glories of heaven. And he clothed himself in flesh for the church. He suffered. He hungered. He died. When all his friends turned their backs on him, he died alone for you. And I would suggest that the man really has the harder of the two commands. Because we have to get up every day and think, how am I going to lay down my life for my wife? How do I put her first? Where do I need to suffer so my wife can thrive? That's our job. Yes, I'm given authority to leave, but it, it's not an authority to get done what I want to get done. It's an authority to help my family and my wife flourish. Spiritual headship, hey, it's working, for the man is not a license to do what you want to do, but empowerment to do what you ought to do, which is lay down your life for your wife. Guys, if you, as a man, are not regularly asking, how can I serve my wife? And asking her, too, how can I serve you? You are not fulfilling your role in your marriage. Forget about submission for a minute. Forget about that. Forget about her side. You focus on what God wants from you, which is laying your life down for your wife. And I guarantee you, you will find that her submission comes way more easier when you're living like Christ. C, male headship does not imply independent decision-making on the part of the man. God gave each gender uh, a set of filters through which they see situations and they, work, and they work best when they're leading together within the home. Even though God always refers to himself as a he in the Bible, he often compares himself to a woman. Now, before you get your pitchforks, let me explain that. There are certain qualities of his character that are better revealed in women than are in man. For example, he often talks about how he relates to his people in terms of mothering. In Isaiah, he said that he was more attentive to his children than a dotting mother. In Matthew, he cared for his, his child Israel broken, like a broken-hearted mother. He says, I want to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks, and so on and so forth. Women in general have stronger relational sensitivity and a stronger nurturing instinct than men. And that's by design. And guess who that's designed after? God. Those qualities are from God. Those instincts bring invaluable perspectives into the decision-making of the home. We need both genders operating in their design because when they do, they reflect the nature of God. That's why we call both genders complementary, there it is again, to each other. Saying that the man is the head and the woman should submit to the husband doesn't mean that the women are absent from decision-making. Just when it comes down to a tie, the man bears the weight, bears the weight of making the final decision. Tim, Tim Keller and Kathy Keller use this great example in their book on marriage, The Meaning of Marriage. It's the best book, one of the best books on marriage. Um, and they, they were talking about when they had to make a decision about moving to New York City, where he served for many, many years. Tim, he felt, yeah, that's what we need to do. Kathy felt, heck no, I'm not going to New York City. And, and the time had come when the decision had to be made, and they couldn't put it off any longer. So Tim did what a lot of us men do, and he goes, okay, if you don't want to go, we won't go. We won't go. I love this story because his wife is hilarious. And she says, oh, no, you don't, you coward. <laughs> You're not making me bear the weight of this decision. You make it. 
He had to make the decision after getting her input, of course, for what God wanted for the family. Again, spiritual headship is not a license to do what you want to do, but an empowerment to do what you ought to do as the man of God in your home. And this doesn't happen often, I would actually argue. In marriages where both genders are living within the bounds of their roles, most of the time, agreement will come out of their initial disagreements through the key word, communication. You need to be communicating as husband and wife. But there are unique situations where you might find yourself at a gridlock. And you men bear the weight as tiebreaker. But that shouldn't be the norm. That should be the outlier. You should work together as best as possible as man and wife to work to an agreement on all decisions. So, headship in the home means that in a tie, the man casts the dividing, deciding vote in a sense. And in church, the headship of men means alone, that men alone bear the weight of occupying the office of pastor and elder. In several places, here in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, Paul makes a clear picture that the office of pastor and elder, and just for a disclaimer, in the New Testament, those words in Greek are the exact same words. So meaning, all your elders here today, why you don't call them pastors beyond me? Because they are your pastors. Elder, pastor, shepherd, bishop, all the same word. So your elder pastor here in these church. They, they, they carry the weight of the official teaching ministry in governance, in guidance, in guardianship of the church. That office sits alone on the shoulders of qualified men because that's how God designed it. You kind of have to do a little bit of a Romans 9 here where he says, will the potter really talk back to the creator? This is how God designed it. End of story. This is why here at FBC, we strive to obey the words of God. Only qualified men serve in the position of pastor-elder. And I want you to catch that word there. Qualified men. Just because you sit in these chairs and you're a man does not mean you will be considered for eldership. Only qualified men. You must meet the requirements as uh, as an elder. And, And as a church, to you, the membership here, who have the voting power, You must determine that we only elect qualified men to the eldership. And if that means we go through a season with only three elders and we violate our bylaws because of that, so be it. Because only qualified men should hold the office of elder. Which leads me to D, which is an important one. Male headship does not mean that women cannot serve or lead in the church. Now, don't get scared by that word lead, all you you big capital C complementarians out there. Notice in this passage, Paul assumes women are praying and prophesying publicly within the church assembly, right? He says in verse 11, 5a, but every wife who prays or prophesies, Paul's saying, women, when you stand up, when you pray, not if you pray, when you stand up and pray and prophesy in the church service, when you deliver a spirit-given word from God like Mary did or Luke did, or in Luke, sorry, or Deborah did in Judges or Huldah did in Chronicles or Priscilla did in Acts or Phoebe did in Romans, when you're proclaiming God's message, do so in a way that doesn't overturn God's design and structure for the genders. So meaning, don't do it in the capacity of an elder or pastor. Meaning, Sunday morning after Sunday morning, this pulpit will be filled by men. And when people come up and share, where do I stand? When women come up and share, where do I stand? I stand on the stage, because I am male headship here. We do it in a way that shows honor and glory to God. God wants to use women within the church. He does. He so does. And he wants to use women powerfully. Some of the biggest influence in my Christian walk are Christian women, just off the top of my head, like Elizabeth Elliot and Susanna Spurgeon, just amazing women of God. And they were powerful women of God who served their king faithfully and publicly within their churches and missions. My problem with this debate, though, it's the debate of complementarianism and egalitarianism. Don't get hung up on the words. But my problem with this debate is you, uh, they use terms like, can women be in ministry? 
I actually hold my bachelor's degree by one of the leading schools in egalitarian thought. And I've argued with these people, and they can never give me good answers. And they always use terminology like, uh, can a woman serve in ministry? Of course she can. Of course, the Bible doesn't ever disqualify that. We, we, every Christian has a ministry. Every Christian is called to live and serve in ministry. The argument that the Bible is laying forth here is the role of pastor, the role of shepherd, the role of elder. Not ministry, just headship. So let's not use that term because that's not even what we're talking about. So women, I want you, I want you to hear it from me. I want you to serve as much as you can in this church in roles that suit you. And I want you to do it publicly because that's what we see in the Bible. That's the type of church that God blesses. But with all things, even us men, we must make sure that we are doing service in a way that honors the boundaries, the distinctions that God lays out for us. And I will tell you this, no matter how uncomfortable this teaching becomes, no matter how much culture progresses, we will not budge an inch on this because the timeless word of God does not budge. And as long as you keep electing godly men into the eldership, we will not budge on this. We won't. Let's move on to my last point. That was by far the first one, uh, or this last, and then the next two categories are very short, I promise. Male headship does not mean women cannot lead in society. A lot of times passages like this get over-applied. I hear this all the time, and they say women shouldn't have jobs outside of the home or shouldn't lead in any context, like in government or workplaces. That's far beyond the scope of what Paul is saying here. The arena in which Paul is making application in these verses is in the home and in the church. Beyond that, we shouldn't make any rules because God doesn't. The paragon of the wise woman in Proverbs 31, clearly she has a robust, high responsibility job with lots of people working for her. Deborah in the book of Judges was the ruler at the highest levels in national leadership. So was Queen Esther and so on. So let's not over apply these verses either. These verses are talking about your home and they're talking about the church. If you stretch it uh, past that by any way, you're a legalist. You're adding to Scripture. And Scripture has some real big warnings about adding or removing things from it. Number two. It's not working. Oh, there it is. Is the whole concept of male headship a cultural accommodation for an archaic society? The most common objection I hear to this teaching is, isn't Paul just, you know, talking culturally here? This doesn't apply to us. It's not relevant to us because we've enlightened ourselves so much. No. For two reasons. Paul says that this, is div- this divine order is rooted in creation itself. Creation supersedes culture because it's going to God's design. These things are true because how God created men and women, he says it between 12 and 14. In verse 14, he says, nature itself teaches us these things. In other places that Paul is talking about headship, he says this too. In Ephesians 5, he points back to the created order as a pattern. He doesn't look at contemporary culture. If Paul was going to talk about cultural situation, he wouldn't have gone back to creation. And by the way, when he references creation, he's talking about pre-fall creation, before man fell into sin. And I point that out because people say, well, gender distinction is only a, a result of the fall. Once you come to Christ, all gender roles are distinct and removed. That's not true. Whatever Paul ta- whenever Paul talks about headship, he appeals to pre-fall design. Creation as God designed it to be. The fall instituted the issues that we have between the two genders. Women are always going to want to usurp the man. And men are going to be lazy and just let her take it. It's true. I know it because I'm a man. The second reason we know this is not cultural accommodation is that Paul ties this this role playing to the demonstration of the gospel itself. He says he says this is how when how men and women relate to each other in the church and in the home it gives a picture to the watching society around us of the gospel. Men give a picture of Christ by leading and laying down their lives sacrificially to their wives and Christ gives a picture of uh, a wife sorry give a picture of Christ um, uh, by submitting and serving their husband as Christ submitted to the father. 
So the question, so, so that's question two. It's not a cultural thing. Paul ties it to created order that supersedes culture, and he ties it to gospel demonstration as well. And I'm going to do the last two questions together because they actually go well together. So that's verses three and four. What's the deal with head coverings, and how does that apply to us? Well, <laughs> Paul's application of honoring male headship is to say in 1 Corinthians 11, 4 to 5, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So her head in this context is the man, and that in turn dishonors Christ. In those days, covering your head, whether it means uh, by means of veil, and when I say veil, I'm not talking about like a Muslim co complete cover there. I'm talking about like a scarf or something over your head. It was a sign of femininity, femininity uh, modesty, and respect. Historian uh, Kyle Harper said, Roman women in late antiquity were to be marked above all else by modesty. For, for a mature woman to wear her hair unveiled was one of the chief signs of sexual immodesty. So that was then. This is now. But what, is this, what, what, what does this communicate? Let me, so let me teach you something about a really important about biblical interpretation because you can go wrong in one or two ways with a passage like this. You can over-apply it or you can under-apply it. Paul and other Bible writers will sometimes teach a timeless principle, and then he'll encourage his readers, which would be his first audience, to apply that timeless principle in culturally appropriate ways that make sense within their context that they're living. So the first way you can go wrong with this is to make their cultural expression normative for everyone. That would be over-applying it, saying, all you women, next week I want to see in head coverings. That would be over-applying it. Please hear me. I'm not asking for that. <laughs> if that's your conviction, do it. I, I don't care. But I, I just want to go on record. I'm not asking for that. The other way you can go wrong is failing to extract this timeless principle and dismiss everything that Paul is saying and, or the other Bible writers are saying as cultural, uh, only culturally applicable to one group. And that would be under-applying it. So the right thing that we are to do is to extract that timeless principle, pull it out of Scripture, and figure out what it looks like in Fellowship Baptist Church in Drumheller, Alberta in 2023. Let me just use a different biblical example to help illustrate this. It's a little less contentious. A few chapters later in, in 1 Corinthians 16, 20, he's going to say things like this. He's going to give this command. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So in those days, kissing somebody on both cheeks was a common way to show friendship and intimacy and warmth to the person that you were meeting, particularly if you were family. Some cultures still do that. I remember my time in Rwanda. I was there for almost, uh, I don't know, a half a month or so, and I was talking with one of the pastors from Africa, uh, from Rwanda there, and he was holding my hand as we were talking. Two men walking and holding hands freaked me right out. And I didn't do anything because I'm really good at, well, no, I shouldn't say I'm really good in awkward situations. I normally make them worse. But uh, I just went with it. And then I asked my translator, what was that about? And he goes, oh, that's how they show that you have their undivided attention and that you're friends. Well, I held everybody's hand after that. That was awesome. <laughs> when you understand the context, right? So some cultures still kiss on the cheek. So you could take that verse literally and insist on kissing every single person in this church every Sunday, and that's a sure sign way that you will get kicked off our greeting team, and it will make you the kind of person that everybody avoids in this church, okay? Uh, <laughs> or you might, sell, you might say, well, since greeting one another with kisses is no longer what we do, this verse doesn't apply to me. But that would be wrong as well. Because then you'd fail to see the timeless principle that applies to us, which is greet one another with warmth and tenderness of family. The right thing to do is figure out culturally appropriate ways of expressing that principle in a day. So probably greet one another means a handshake or a fist pump or whatever. Or if you're opposite sex, you know that weird Christian side hug thing. Or if you're two men, you pat each other on the back really hard to show your manliness for some reason. I hate that. But, but uh, <laughs> we are to take the unchanging principle of greeting one another like a family and put it into the changing expressions of culture. The same is true with the principle of head coverings and long hair. What communicates in our day these two things? Well, what did it communicate in that day? Well, long hair 
communicated femininity, right? So does not nature itself teach you that a man who wears long hair is a disgrace for him? Nature itself teaches you, he's saying, that men and women are different, and thus they should look different and not try to look like each other. The point is not long hair or short hair. The point is that every culture has things that distinguish between men and women, and we shouldn't blur those lines. In Corinth, men didn't have long hair unless they were trying to cross-dress. And women didn't have short hair unless they were trying to look like men. And Paul's saying to both, don't do that. So that was their culture. That's no longer true in our culture. You know, we could sing signs, signs everywhere, signs, right? You long-haired hippie freaks, right? Uh, Okay, good. There is some hippies still in here. Okay. What does dressing in gender-appropriate ways that honor the distinction of nature look like in our culture? Well, probably it would mean that men shouldn't wear skirts, unless you're listening from Scotland, and that's normal there. To each their own. Go for it. But if you're a guy, it's probably safe to say that you shouldn't be wearing midriff blouses with lace sequins and mom jeans, okay? Like that, that's, not, that's God made you like a man, dressed like a man. And what that looks like changes from place to place and even with cultures. Even just rewinding 50 years ago, uh, for a man to have an earring would have communicated femininity, right? Uh, 50 years ago, a woman who had tattoos might have communicated masculinity, but that's no longer true for each case. Kevin DeYoung, a good, I always have to get a good Dutch theologian in here, he says, however we apply this passage, we can assert without equivocation that God wants men to look like men and women to look like women, though what that physically looks like will vary from time to time and place to place. The Bible here affirms an essential truth, no longer obvious in our day. It is disgraceful for a man to appear to be a woman and a woman to appear to be a man. It's dishonoring to God to do things that mask or confuse your gender. So first, men in every culture should look like men, and women should look like women. Second, when women lead and teach in the, in, in the context of church ministry, they should do so in ways that demonstrate and not, uh, and not attempt to sub, uh, subvert God's order. So here at Fellowship Baptist Church, I believe, we believe that women have access to every spiritual gift that men do, including teaching and leading. And they can do so and should do so, but we believe, based on this chapter in 1 Timothy 2, that they should and can do so in a way that shows respect to the order that God's established. Again, I'm not going to reiterate it, but that eldership is male-focused. So having women wear head coverings when she's on the stage no longer communicates respect like it did in Corinth. But our head coverings today, if you will, is making sure that men and women are serving in their appropriate roles, which bring glory and honor to God. This is why we only have male eldership. Now, now just because you're male, again, doesn't mean we're going to consider you have to be qualified. But one of those qualifications, I'll give you this. You have to be a male. So you have one thing going for you. As a, a theologian by the name of Karen Swallows, as I begin to end here, uh, she says, Christ's headship over the church is reflected metaphorically in men being the primary deliverers of the word of God to the church in the capacity of pastor-elder. She's right. That's a biblical distinction that we want to honor as a church because the apostle said in 1 Corinthians 11, not to do so is dishonoring to God. And there are other ways that you can, you can show submission as a woman if you want some examples to your husband, you know, like wearing wedding rings or something like that, or taking your husband's last name, uh, you know, to how you dress. These can all be symbols that you recognize and respect the order that God has set up in your home and in your church. Now, I know some of you are hearing this and you're like, oh man, I've went to the wrong church for one. No, I'm just, but, but I'm on, aren't we going to be on the wrong side of history with all this, Aaron? I get it. I feel that tension. I feel that. But I made up my, my mind long ago that it's more important to be on the right side of God, on the right side of the Bible, than it is to be on the right side of culture-shifting view of history. The wise man builds his house upon the rock of Christ, the word of God. I would rather be on the right side of God because even if you're in the minority of man's eye, you're always in the majority if you're on God's side. And I don't want to throw myself to the whims of the shifting culture and their opinion. Amen. You go ahead if you want to be on the right side of history. I'm going to stay on the right side of Jesus. Amen? Amen. 
Okay, let's end. I love how a Andrew Wilson summarizes this all for us because what we're after is men and women are different and men and women are equal. Wilson says, if the way that you're trying to show distinction actually degrades one gender, that's a failure. If the way you're trying to display equality actually erases any distinction, that's a failure too. That's what we strive to do. And we do so with the knowledge that God's word is good. And his church design is best. Even when it goes against culture. And we'd all do well to heed it. So let's strive together. Stepping up in the roles that God has placed on us. And do all those things, not for our glory. Not for what makes me feel best or what I want to do. But for the glory of God. Because then and only then will the world around us see the picture of Christ. Because that's what Paul is arguing here. He's saying, because when men is serving in his role and staying in his lane, and women are serving in their roles and staying in their lane, it actually points the eyes of everybody looking in to the true head of the church, which isn't me, which isn't Jason as our chairman of our eldership. It's Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. And we want to do things that bring glory and honor to his name and may we never as a church usurp the authority of Christ. Amen? Let's pray and put on some more antiperspirant. <laughs> Father, we thank you, O Lord, for your tough words in your scripture. We thank you, O Lord, that you have designed us in a certain pattern, in a certain way. And Father, although the culture around us will put pressure on us and make us feel guilty for adhering to your word, and Father, may we never give in. May we, as one of our, uh, our speakers yesterday say, said, be stubborn in a good way. That would be stubborn in the word of God because we will not go where the word of God doesn't go. We will not add, nor shall we take. Father, give us strength. We're going to have trouble in this world. We know that. We're going to be persecuted in this world. We know that. Because you were. They hated you first. And Father, this is one of the areas we will be attacked the most in. And Father, I pray that we, as we look to the book of Hebrews, when others were imprisoned for preaching your gospel, Lord, it says that the church, they even identified with those who were being locked in jail, even to the extent of their property being plundered. But they said they looked to the joy that was set before them because they knew they had a greater one, an abiding one. Father, we know you live in us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Be with us, O oh Lord. Give us strength. Give us vigor. Help us call the culture to Christ. May we not adapt, but Father, may we transform. In Jesus' name, amen.